back to the Cycling Tips podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is Monday, October 25th, and we've got quite a bit to talk about today and most of the usual crew to do it. No Shoddy Dave today, unfortunately. Shoddy is, uh, I think he's house hunting. He's moving back over toward the Atlantic. He's like switching sides of the mountains, basically, leaving Honesty again, heading back somewhere else. That guy moves more than anyone I've ever known. Right? Like all over the place. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like Abby's always somewhere new. I think Abby's homeless right now. <laughs> I am. Living in a van. I am. Down by the river. Down by the river. <laughs> <laughs> Abby, how are you this morning? Uh, we are currently honeymooning in a van. <laughs> James, how are you this morning? Doing all right. Not too bad. A little bit, a little bit chilly. I'm, I'm up in Winter Park at the moment, and it's very much winter up here. Although I did bring my mountain bike with me, so it's supposed to be relatively warm today. And I'm thinking, with this light dusting of snow that we got last night, that the dirt's going to be really good. Ooh. And Dane Cash, what's up? Yeah, not much. I'm glad to not be in snow. Ugh. How can you say that and be a Colorado resident? Because it's nice here for, I don't know, eight or nine months of the year. And, and I'm cool with that. Unbelievable. Yeah. We've got a lot to talk about today. We've got got some weirdness over a bike exchange that Abby's going to dig into in just a bit. Plus, what is going on over at DSM? This is something we've talked about a number of times, the sort of the difficulty that team seems to have in holding on to talent. That trend continues. Got some transfer news and news from the final Women's World Tour race of the season. Plus, in Nerd Nugget today, we're chatting water bottles. Bidon. Coming up soon. But first, Abby, what are we learning about Continental today? Did you know that 2021 marks Continental's 150th anniversary? The business was started back in 1871 in Hanover, Germany. And although it was horses they worked on back then, not bicycles, hence the logo, that's a horse, you know, a little homage to their origins. Through the years, Continental has seen many changes, including a shift to uh, Korbach in 1907. Yeah, cool. It's pronunciation, not my strong suit. One thing that (laughs) remains the same is that... (laughs) One thing that remains the same is that Continental tires are still handmade in Germany. In fact, if you look carefully at a set of Continental tires and packaging, you will see that statement on it. So you know every Conti tire is meticulously prepared for your best ride. Whether you're a pro riding in Latour or a commuter riding to work, you're riding tires that have been made just for you. Check out them at continental Dash. Tires with an I dot com. Know why? I'm pretty sure it's an I. Oh, sorry, Brits and Aussies and everyone else. It is an I. I can confirm that. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring today's episode. Let's get right into it. The other thing that I forgot to mention in the little intro there is we're also going to give you, dear listeners, probably 10 minutes uh, from our nerd alert podcast from last week now this the reason why i'm going to drop it into today's episode is because we got a lot of great feedback on it and people seem to really enjoy it and want all of our cycling tips podcast listeners to get to enjoy it as well if you've already listened to it i apologize 
you can skip right through. But we're going to be talking about, well, James, myself, Zach, and Dave Rome are going to be talking about what we would do if we ran the bike industry, uh, which basically boils down to make aluminum bikes and make them almost free, I think. We're not big fans of capitalism, I think. All right, let's get into today's racing. Where are we going to start? Let's start with Bike Exchange. Abby, you wrote a piece last week, The Curious Case of Bike Exchange. What's going on at Bike Exchange? Specifically, they've lost a number of marquee riders. They're sort of without any marquee rider at the moment because of Amanda Spratt's, uh, what's the, it's the artery issue. That Iliac it, artery endofibrosis. That's the word I'm looking for. Because of that, they're sort of without any marquee rider at the moment and and really haven't done, made a whole lot of signings into next year. So so what's going on here? Yeah, so it was just kind of, I, I've been watching the goings on at Bike Exchange. Um, they've always been one of my favorite teams, uh, being an Australian team, and they've had a lot of really awesome riders go through there. Uh, I'm a big fan of Tennille. So I always kind of like to keep an eye on them. And it's been interesting watching them this transfer season because they've lost a handful of their top riders and also riders who've been on the team for years and years. Uh, Grace Brown, their hands down, their top rider, is leaving for FDJ Novella Aquitaine Futuroscope. Sarah Roy, who's been on the team for like seven years, is joining Canyon SRAM on a two-year deal. Uh, Jessica Roberts is going to high tech products. We've got some retirements. Um, Lucy Kennedy, who's been on the team her entire career and is maybe best known. She's won some big races like San Sebastian. Um, but she might be best known for, uh, narrowly missing out on a stage of the Giro Rosa that was won by Voss. But it's been weird watching whatever's going on over there because they haven't announced, well, as of today and recording this, they announced their first new signing um, in Kristen Faulkner, the American from Tibco Silicon Valley Bank. But until today, they hadn't announced a single new rider, a single re-signing, and all that was coming out was that riders were leaving left, right, and center. They only had, I think, three riders that had already signed multi-year contracts that included 2022 um, one of them being Spratt, who's out, and another being Tennille. But it was—it's been kind of like, what? What the heck's going on over there? How? What are you guys doing? Yeah, I mean, it's not like we're worried about the team disappearing, at least not in the short term, right? Because so they added Jayco uh, as a sponsor for next year on the jersey, but basically the same thing that happens on the men's side as well. It's just Jerry Ryan putting different Jerry Ryan related businesses on the Jersey. So Jayco is one of those bike exchange is another one. They just sort of cycle them around. Uh, Mitchelton is another one. Uh, yeah, they just sort of, you know, move different Jerry Ryan businesses around on the Jersey and it's, it's fundamentally all his money, but he seems to be at least for now, you know, happy to continue to fund this team. But do we, do we potentially see an issue further down the line? Like it's, is this team going to exist in 2023, for example? Are the new riders that are coming onto it, are they getting multi-year contracts? Or are we looking at one-year contracts basically to run out the, the existing contracts of those three riders that were already signed through 2022 and then potentially the end of the team? What, what are we looking at here? 
Well, Kristen Faulkner did sign a two year. So there's hope. Um, she's signed through 2023. So, I mean, that, that's a good sign for fans of like the only Australian world tour team in the Peloton. Um, but it is, I mean, I imagine that Jerry Ryan can only do this for so long. I mean, he's, he's got enough money to do it forever. (laughs) (laughs) Just, just to be clear. We'll only do this for so long, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We'll only do, I mean, like he is not young right i don't know how old he is i have no i don't know anything about him so he's not near death no no (laughs) (laughs) but i i don't know i mean it's really interesting just uh we're kind of seeing a lot of the teams that are just funded by like rich guys um like they they do fold eventually bmc um i mean we've still got israel startup nation and sylvan adams but he's kind of new to the game and this team has been kind of riding the Jerry Ryan coattails for a really, really long time without being able to find a solid other uh, title sponsor. And there was like talks of premier tech. I'm pretty sure earlier this year that fell apart, but I don't know. It's, it's definitely a curious, curious situation. I mean, the organization behind both, the, the women's team and the men's team are clearly looking for other money, right? Because we, we, we can go back to the Manuela Fundacion craziness that happened before. Like they're looking for external sources of cash. And in fact, that was supposed to be a, a purchase of the entire team. Uh, so we know that it's not the, the current situation is not, shall we say ideal? Probably it's not what they would hope for. Uh, now it's good to hear that we've got contracts running through 2023. That doesn't necessarily mean the team will run through 2023. You can break contracts, but still it's a good sign for sort of intentions, right? I just wonder, yeah, I wonder how long, I wonder how long Jerry Ryan's going to want to sort of just keep dunking money into, into this thing without being able to find either somebody else to cover some of the expenses for the men's team or someone else to cover some of the expenses for the women's team. Now we should of course say that like you can run an entire women's team basically the salary of one top male rider so we're talking about two entirely different uh contexts here and scales here uh i don't i say that because it's just the reality at the moment anyway Mm -hmm. so i don't think that i don't think that you know jerry ryan dumping a million and a half or whatever it is into bike exchange every year is is you know going to imminently stop but there's there's indications that the team itself would like to find other cash somewhere. I mean, also, um, it's not going to be for much longer that the that you can run a top women's team on the salary of one good male rider with the UCI increasing the minimum salary for the women uh, all the time, every year. It's kind of building up to the point where women's teams are going to take a lot more funding and especially with the massive increase of racing next year for the world tour women. I mean, we saw, we'll get to Drenta at a certain point, but there was the start list was bleak. I mean, tons of the women's world tour team showed up with four riders. They just did not have the riders to be able to field a full team. And that is going to be more and more likely unless riders pick up more or teams pick up more riders 
and that includes more money for them. And it, so it's kind of, I mean, it's good. It's, you know, it's, it's going to get more expensive. No question. I, I mean, one, because they're going to need more riders on the team. Two, because the riders are going to get more expensive. Three, because you've now got more kind of super teams, right? You've got more teams paying riders better. You've got Trek, et cetera. Uh, and that just, it's going to raise the prices of, of top riders across the board, right? So that sort of like, you can run a pretty successful professional women's team for a million or a million and a half a year. I don't think that is going to continue for more than another maximum year or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly it's going to be three million, four million, five million. Now, you you mentioned something interesting there, Abby, which is the pretty dramatic increase in uh, in races next year and how teams are already struggling this year. Do we have an indication that teams are planning on increasing roster sizes for for next year? Because, yeah, I, I mean, like even the sort of Roubaix uh, women's tour thing. Like I remember talking with Ruth. Ruth had intended to sort of retire after Worlds, right? Didn't do Roubaix, but almost got called up for the women's tour. Almost, almost. And didn't, thankfully, for her, because she was wanted to go home. But like that sort of thing still happens all over the place in the women's Belton. Yeah, I mean, I think that we are seeing a slight increase in the number of riders on teams um, for, for next year, but barely. Um, other teams have decreased the number of riders. Um, so it's interesting. I think at the moment, teams aren't entirely sure what to do with the growing calendar and how to manage it. Um, they've always gotten away with doing a bunch of racing with the 12 to 14 rider rosters that they've had. So I think next year they're going to try to do it again. A lot of the teams, but I mean, we definitely saw this year that teams need to increase. Um, and I talked with Lizzie about this on our, on the interview that I did with her earlier in the year on freewheeling about how it's, it's the natural progression of the professionalism of women's cycling. And it means that, uh, although Kaylee does not like this, it means that the top riders on teams can be more specific about which races they target and which races they get to do, which also opens the, um, opens the other races up to other riders. So it's kind of, I mean, in my opinion, a win-win across the board, but I don't think we're going to see it next year. I think this is like a 2013 thing once the teams figure out how to navigate the growing calendar next year why don't we just transition right into drenta then uh we were supposed to talk about this later in the show but since we've started started down this this pathway here was the final women's world tour race of the season how did it go down and and what kind of what stood out to you abby yeah final women's world tour race of the season um it was a kind of small bunch ish like a select group that sprinted for the win won by Lorena Wiebes, which is no surprise. Um, she, I mean, she kind of flew under the radar this year, but she was hands down the best sprinter in the women's Peloton this season. She, if it was a sprint and she was in the Peloton and she was racing for the win, there was like a couple of times that they, they handed the torch over to Corinne perhaps. Um, and she actually doesn't race a ton. She's her calendar was kind of scarce, but if it was a sprint finish and she was there, she won it. And so this seeing her win Ronda Vendrenta is, is totally, um, you were like, oh yeah, of course, of course, that's what happened. Um, I think the talking point coming away from the race, other than just her being incredible, 
was the fact that all ABTC Ljubljana live racing, Trek Segafredo, uh, Team Yumbo Visma all started with four riders. So just a very <laughs> scarce um, peloton when it came to the top teams. But other, I mean, it was still a great race and a great end to the Women's World Tour pel- uh, season. And hopefully we don't have the races like this postponed into the fall next year because I think it was just a really long season and that has a plays a role in the women's tour and also this one being a little bit kind of forgotten and not what they should be on the calendar. Well, speaking of the team that Webus is riding for, Team DSM, more weirdness going on over there. Dane, we've talked about this a little bit before. What's going on? So this is very recently being reported just before we started recording the podcast uh, it's not official yet it's wheeler flitz is reporting this that the dutch outlet but they tend to have pretty good sources for well dsm related news uh, so it seems like there's little reason to distrust them here uh yeah they are reporting that tishba note is the latest rider who will be uh, leaving team dsm formerly sunweb uh early leaving leaving the team before his contract is up uh, apparently due to yeah, team and rider wanting to part ways, and he just is the, uh, yeah, like I said, the latest in a very long line of big names who have done that. Marcel Kittle, Tom Dumoulin, Michael Matthews, uh, Mark Hershey, most recently. And it's just, uh, it really, I, I really wonder, it, it can't be good for recruitment, because if all these good riders are constantly leaving the team... Uh, I, I just Im- I imagine it's hard for them to sign new riders. I, I guess I say that, but then they always do sign new good riders. But just the num- the caliber of talented people that have done this, that have signed with the team and then uh, left early. Again, this hasn't been confirmed yet, but it's you know being reported by Wheeler Flitz. It seems like a re- reasonable story because it's happened so many times before. So yeah, Strada Bianca, former Strada Bianca winner, Tishbenot, and very talented all-rounder. He's one of the m- most complete riders in the peloton. He can really do it all. Uh, is apparently, he's apparently leaving DSM. Don't know where he's going. Uh, but, uh, the, the, uh, early departure is, I just, I feel like it's gotta be, they have to stop. They have to stop doing this. They have to find a way to get riders to stay because I don't think it's a sustainable model when you keep signing riders to multi-year deals and they keep leaving. We, we talked before about it, maybe just being a money thing. And, and it seems like. I'm sure the money is part of it, right? We know that this is not a team that's that's flush with cash. And they're pretty good at developing riders. So they often take riders, like Mark Hershey, for example, take riders and and sort of turn them into superstars, for, for lack of a better term, which makes them obviously much more expensive. But it feels to me like there's got to be something else here. And we've talked a little bit about this in the past and how we know it's a team with a certain management style and a style that some riders just sort of don't fit into basically. Uh, and that seems to be part of the problem because didn't, didn't Benoit like just, did he just re up a contract and then break it like months later? Right? Yeah. Yes. So he was extended through the end of 2022 uh, as of now, but yeah, they, they are known to have an extremely regimented um, program and it is sort of, expected that you will will get with that program and and do their thing and and uh train and 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 ride the way they want you to ride uh 
And that has caused strife with a number of riders in the past, riders who have gotten there and said, oh, I, this actually isn't for me. I don't really know how riders can still go there knowing that that is the case and be surprised by that because it's been years we've heard about this. And, you know, riders talk. They know this. But they still do. They still sign with the team and still leave. Uh, and, yeah, like I said, Benoit's just the latest one. And who knows who will be next. But I feel like if you're if you're on the market and you see, oh, well, this this system didn't work for Kittle and Bargill and Michael Matthews and Tom Dumoulin and, and now Hershey and, and Benoit, that, that's got to be tough to come around to the idea of signing with that team. Also worth mentioning that uh, Corinne Rivera is also leaving DSM after, I think, six six years with the team. She signed in 2017 uh, was her first year with them. So four years? No, that can't be right. Anyway, I can't do math. Don't judge me. Anyway, she's she's leaving the team for uh, Team Yumbo Visma. That's only four years. That's not six years. I don't know where I made up two years. Anyway, not it's the five. point. Yeah. Yeah. Five, years. <laughs> five, five years. Five years. Five years. Okay. <laughs> I'm... I'm an artist. Okay. Anyway, um, Corinne is leaving the team after five years with, uh, with them and joining Yumbo Visma for next year. So, um, that's like a, that's a pretty big loss for them. Actually. She's a really good rider who's kind of found her footing, uh, at the tail end of the 2021 season. Um, and has been part of their core group of riders for, I mean, since she joined and and won Flanders, the only American to ever win Flanders. And Chad Haig is leaving. I have no additional information <laughs> other than that. I saw it on Instagram this morning that Chad Haig is leaving. Uh, he's been also with the team for a very long time. He he turned pro with them with Sunweb, didn't we? Back in the day, I believe. Won a Giro stage, won a, won a time trial stage at the Giro. Uh, I was there for that day. That was an emotional day. Um, his Instagram post is, is he's, a, he's a very, Chad is a very smart guy. He's just very intelligent. Um, he's a good writer too, and his Instagram post is well makes that clear. Uh, yeah, everything from sort of moving over to Europe, making the big jump, uh, lost his dad in the last uh, about four years ago, I believe, became a dad, and now moving on. Did not say what he's doing. I have a couple guesses, but we'll have to keep an eye out for for what Chad's going to be up to next year. But just a yeah, another another loss for. For that team right now that this one, I think the Chad thing is a slightly different scenario, but uh, still another another loss for DSM. Um, if you don't follow Chad on Twitter, his race simplified race reports are a joy. They're great. <laughs> I love Chad. Chad's a great guy. Well, let's move on from from, uh, you know, elbowing DSM in the ribs, which I feel like we do like every year now because they keep doing the same thing and you're right Dane they got to figure this, this one out there's some other transfer news floating around you know as we're as we're trying to get a trying to get a handle on what next year is going to look like from a from a teams and riders perspective do try to keep an eye on major transfer news so Dane what do we got yeah mostly comings and goings from Quebec and Next Hash uh, and Israel Startup Nation are the two main teams that have been in the news over the past week since we last podcast Podcasted. one with money one without yes uh the quebec and has situation remains in limbo we don't really know where things stand for that team but we do know that uh i would say two of their best riders the maybe the two best riders on that team uh i think since we last had a show have since signed elsewhere 
Victor Kampenarts signed with Lado Sudal last week. And then more recently, Giacomo Nazzolo signed with Israel's Startup Nation. So the team had told riders that they can look for contracts elsewhere. Uh, and now they have lost. I think two of their, their most talented riders won't be returning for next year. Um, that, to me, signals that things aren't great. Uh, it is good news for Lotto Sudol to get Kampenarts back. He formerly rode with that team, and he had a great year this year. And I think really developed as a as a aggressive breakaway type rider. He's already you know kind of been known as a good time trialist who can ride his bike pretty far in the span of one hour on a track. Uh, and he also is a good time trialist. But we yeah now we've seen him win some some stuff um, from from breakaways. And then Giacomo Nazzolo, who I'm a big fan of, uh, he had a really uh, emotional Giro d'Italia this year. Finally took his first career stage win at the Giro after coming in second. A dozen more or more times uh, had a had a really nice season, uh, and he is headed to Israel Startup Nation. So Quebec and Next Hash not looking great over there. Uh, meanwhile, Israel Startup Nation Israel Startup Nation has signed quite a few riders in the past few days. Uh, Jakob Fulsong and Ugo Uhl coming over from the Astana team. That news from two weeks ago, I think suggesting that there's some possibility, a lot of talk about whether Premier Tech might go to Israel Startup Nation along with Canadian Ugo Uhl. Uh, and yeah, now they've also signed Giacomo Nazzolo uh, with, with Andre Grebel retiring. They're getting a, a, a rider who I think is capable of winning some top-level sprints now, and, and that's good for them. So their fortunes, I think, on the rise, and, and they have, they have, yeah, they've made some signings to rejuvenate that roster with, with Dan Martin and Greipel leaving. So that is the two big kind of teams, I think, from, from the transfer situation. Uh, the Astana team has made a number of signings uh, as, as well, but nobody major since we last podcast, uh, with apologies to Antonio Nibali. Uh, <laughs> he's one of them. Yeah, uh, other he, than that. He remains not major. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm like, I mean, we love, and I don't actually, I, I don't know Antonio. I can't say I love Antonio. I don't know him at all. But he's not major. Sorry, yeah. buddy. Yeah. Uh, Will Barta is headed to Movistar, which I think is quite interesting. Uh, he was with EF this year. He, of course, had that great ride at the 2020 Vuelta and and signed with EF off the back of that. And now he's headed to Movistar. And that team is, is has made some interesting moves lately. And is kind of their, their roster is starting to look a little bit different. Uh, and I'll be interested to see him riding alongside fellow American Matteo Jorgensen at at Movistar. And then just today, uh, Kristen Faulkner signing with, with, uh, with bike exchange, obviously is a pretty big move. We, we've already talked about this, but, uh, a, a pretty big deal, I think. And, and, uh, something to, to keep it on for the future. Yeah. She's a extremely strong bike rider who needs more European experience basically. So I think this could be, this could be a good move for her. This is like slightly related, but also like slightly unrelated. Ian Garrison's going to uh, Legion of LA from the from kind of quick step, which is quite a move. Yeah, that is a move. It is a move. It's a move. You know, if Legion is fascinating, right? I, I've spent a fair amount of time chatting with folks over there the last couple of weeks, uh, mostly related to the USA crit stuff, which we are still following up on, by the way, keep an eye out. Um, it, it, there's big stuff going on over there. And I think if you start to sort of like look at the, the bits that they're that they're 
pulling together, you can start to make some guesses about where they want to end up, you know, sort of mid next season, end of next season into 2023. And I think the important point there is that the ambitions at Legion are not to fit themselves into the sort of existing uh, power and financial structure of cycling, if that makes sense. So like a Legion Tour de France team is not the goal. I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident in saying that. So then, you know, when they, when they start hiring world tour riders then what is the goal? Uh, it's an interesting, it's interesting stuff going on. I was, I was trying to get Justin on uh, the podcast this week and sort of due, due to the USA crit stuff, we ended up sort of bouncing that one back. Um, but anyway, uh, I, something to keep an eye on and, and signings like that, they, they say more uh, than just the signing alone, I think. Because uh, they grabbed Alexis Ryan, didn't they? As well? Yeah, another, another sort of, you know, from Europe, pulling, pulling riders back into the States to, to ride for Legion. It's sort of the same, same deal there. So, interesting. Keep an eye on it. We will keep an eye on that, and we will try to provide some context for you uh, when we can. Yeah, L- Legion's fascinating for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and these signings point to that for me. All right, that's enough racing roundup. Like I said, we're going to run a bit of the Nerd Alert podcast at the end of this episode. But before we do, it's time for our Nerd Nugget today. Nerd Alert. Nerd Alert. Nerd Alert. Nerd Alert. James, what are we talking about? Well, I was doing some dishes the other day, as I often do, because I'm the one who, well, my wife is the one who makes dinner, and I'm the one who cleans up dinner. Um, But uh, I was noticing in our cabinet that we keep all of our bike water bottles in that we have a lot of bike water bottles. And it dawned on me that most of the people that I know who are also cyclists also have a lot of bike water bottles. Despite the fact that we're usually only using like two of them at a time, maybe three, maybe four. Why the heck do we all have so many freaking bike water bottles? I, I, so I did a purge when I moved recently. And I'm down to like, I think I'm still down to like 10, like <laughs> which ten, is way more than I need. 10 is still yeah. a lot. Why uh, do we have so many? I think we accumulate them. Bec- like, I don't, I can't remember the last time I bought a water bottle. They're, you get them places. They're, they're swag or you just, I don't, we just get them. And it doesn't, it's not because we went looking for them. No, no, no. I, I agree. And I, and I, and I posted the question up on the Cycling Tips forum, just kind of starting to get a little... A little smattering of responses for how many bottles people have and kind of where they came from and why we have so many. And and yes, for sure, most people, it sounds like, have just sort of ended up with bottles. Um, but a bunch of people have certainly bought all the bottles that they have. But like we still have a lot of water bottles. So for the ones who, for the people who have accumulated a lot of bottles, um, so we haven't paid anything for them. I guess the question that I have is why do we hold on to so many of them? Like, why are they so hard to get rid of? So, you know, Kaylee, I did a purge the other day too, and I still have a lot of water bottles and I don't know why. <laughs> and there, and there are some that I just can't quite get rid of. I know some of them are from like events and that sort of thing that they're kind of like mementos. Um, do, do you, do you have any that have mold in them that you no, can't get rid no, of, but you God keep, no. You, no. So I, I have a couple so that I don't, I don't use, I don't use, I'm like, but I'm like, in the back of my head, I'm like, at some point, I'm going to clean this properly and I will use this water bottle again. 
But until that point, it will just sit in the back of my cupboard with like, it's not even mold. It's like mold. Uh, you know, it got left too long at some point and it's got like stains in it, basically. And I can't get rid of them. Am I a hoarder? Like, what is the problem here? I, I, I don't know, but you may have heard of this fellow, Ronan McLaughlin, perhaps. Yes. He's an, an occasional contributor to Cycling Tips that we hired about a year ago, who wrote an excellent yep. article on how to clean water bottles. So you may want to, you might want to read that, Kaylee. I just ignore everything Ronan says as a rule. So oh, that's, uh, I think, I think yeah. that's going to hurt his feelings, Kaylee. It's going to hurt his feelings. <laughs> I noticed when we were talking about tires, T-I-R-E or T-Y-R, we didn't say Irish people. And I was worried that if, Ronan, if you're listening, I just want you to know that I didn't forget about you. <laughs> he does listen. He listens to the podcast. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I don't, I should be clear. I don't use moldy water bottles. I just struggle to get rid of them for some reason, and I have no idea why. Is that why it's that's why it was good for me to move and to just chuck like a quarter of the stuff that was in my house, you know, donate it, recycle it, trash it, a mix of the three, get rid of a bunch of the stuff that that you just don't need. We need to do this more more often in our lives, I think. The purging is helpful, but the not accumulating, I think, is the more important part. Abby, how many water bottles do you have? Um, I'm, well, I mean, it, that depends if you're counting in my apartment, uh, yes. where we mm. actually live or in the yes. van. Cause in the van, we only no, no. have three between two of us. Oh, Ooh. no, but I'm, I'm wondering primarily in the apartment. I would say at least 18, <laughs> but we use the same four every time. That's the thing. Everyone says the oh, same wow. thing. We have like a whole bunch of water bottles and we always use the same, like four or six or something between my wife you and need I. backups. Do your water bottles have to match? Yes, like always. You got two, bottle, I, I, two bottles like, on your bike. I like for them to match. I do. I have to Mine admit. never match. Same. Never. Never, know. ever, ever match. That's not a surprise. <laughs> I would like it if they did, but I can't be bothered to make that happen. That's not a surprise. <laughs> but even then, so you have like maybe three or four pairs or something that you use all the time. Yeah. Why do we have so many? Like I, I, I am dying for cabinet space in my kitchen. We have a tiny little kitchen. Why the heck do I have a whole cabinet full of water bottles? Why? I don't know. I think we've just identified a, a not of a, not a source of insanity, but maybe a, 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 it's a weird thing that cyclists have. Yeah. A symptom of insanity that we all have a little bit. I mean, I, I'd like to remove myself from this because every time I get two new bottles, two new matching bottles, I recycle the two old bottles. Oh, and wow. The Whoa, rest, what? Yeah, the rest of the 16 bottles that are probably in our house belong to my husband. So mm. I'm not insane, at least so not in only, that way. <laughs> so you only have two bottles at a time. Yeah. I only use two at a time, so I only have two at a time. My God, that's so logical and sensible. It sounds so logical, Abby, but I, that's I can't believe that. No, are, are that all, gives me anxiety. Are all that of gives your me clothes, anxiety. Yeah, are, are all of your clothes also folded using the Marie Kondo method? No. My clothes are chaos. <laughs> I have way too much clothes. Way too much. But bottles take uh, up space, and it's they do. It's, yeah. All right. Well, let us know what you do with your bottles. Tweet at us at AngryAsian, at Cycling Tips, at Kaylee Fretz. Send us an email. Or head over tech. to the forum. Head, on, head, over, head over to the, the forum. forum. Post in CyclingTips.com. Yep. Yeah, actually, there's already, a, there, well, James, you already made a topic there. So head, over to, head straight over to the forum. Drop your thoughts in. 
on your particularly particular brand of insanity with with water bottles, whether that's uh, Abby's clearly psychotic uh, decision <laughs> <laughs> to get rid of all of her water bottles except for two, or or my obviously also psychotic decision to hang on to water bottles that once had mold in them. Uh, let us know where you are. Let us know where you are on that spectrum. And we'll pop in there as well. Now, for those who missed it, uh, Nerd Alert used to be a segment in this podcast. We decided to spin it out and give it its own podcast because we wanted to give it more than 20 minutes per episode. We wanted to give it, you know, the full hour, the full 45 minutes, whatever we want to do on a given week. James hosts it. We're also joined, of course, by Dave Rome, our Aussie tech editor, and sometimes Ronan, and usually Zach Edwards, our pro mechanic from the Boulder Gruppetto in Boulder. And sometimes I even hop on, including this week when I hopped on. Now, we talk about all kinds of stuff. It's deep, deep tech dives. Uh, but I think we try to keep it pretty fun most of the time. So you don't have to necessarily be a massive nerd to, to enjoy it. And this week, we set ourselves a challenge. If we ran the bike industry, what would we do? What, were, what are our wish lists for the bike industry? Now, of course, we don't run the bike industry, which... I think everybody should be pretty thankful for. Good thing in in general. But if we were if we were running the bike industry, what would we do? So here's about ten minutes of that episode. If you've already listened to it, feel free to listen again if you really want to, or you can turn the podcast off at this point. That's up to you. All right, that's it from us this week. Enjoy Nerd Alert. Bye bye. See you. Question for James: the the replicating ETAP with Shimano Di2. So, do you have it so you push both left and right for the front shifting? No, that unfortunately is not possible. So, what no, I, I do, so. no. So, uh, but but I do have all the buttons on one side going to harder gears, and all the buttons on the other side going to uh, easier okay. gears. Gotcha. So it is still one you know, one pair of buttons to control the rear derailleur, and one pair of buttons for the front derailleur. Um, so it's not quite ETAP esque, but that's as close as you can get with Di2. I like that. Works quite well, actually. It should come that way. And, and honestly, it's basically how you have it. If you have the sprint shifters or the climbing buttons, it's 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 how they are. Yeah. So I just did the same thing with my main levers. Works better that way. Was that my thing? That turned into my rant there. I mean, I started talking about like end user experience. It can yeah. be all of our rants. These aren't like, even <laughs> meant to be rants. It's meant to be a positive, wishful thing. You know, yeah. it's happy. Have you met happy. us, Dave? No, no. <laughs> I don't think you've met us. All right. Well, uh, let, let's maybe I'll try and swing things a little bit more into a positive direction here. Sort of. I'm, I'm sure it'll end up, be, end up being random. I gave SRAM kudos. That's you positive. Did. You did. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would like to see, certainly on the road riding side of things, I would love to see companies spending a lot more money and efforts in advocacy work instead of dumping a bunch of stuff into continuing to support racing. Um, I have talked to multiple companies about this sort of thing before and kind of gotten a handle on what they spend relatively on advocacy work versus racing sponsorship, that sort of thing. Especially on the road side, um, we are constantly hearing, at least on our side anyway, we always hear from companies about how they are talking about wanting to grow the pie, bring more people into the sport, that sort of thing. And that sort of has happened now over the last year and a half, just certainly by no efforts of the bike industry. Just, I guess you can sort of thank COVID, I guess. Um, But... 
I guess the reason, you know, we were talking about marginal gains and that sort of thing just a minute ago and how that's always kind of silly, but I feel like the reason why we are in the situation where we are always saddled with these kind of annoying marginal gains with all these compromises in terms of other stuff is because road bikes are about as good as they are going to be, I think, for the most part, or at least they've, the, the performance of them has certainly plateaued, I guess, over the last nonsense. 10 years or so. Count another three and a half watts or third of a watt. Minimum. But in, in, in the process of doing all that, I mean, the, I said earlier, we were having a, a, a Slack conversation uh, just between staff. Not, uh, I guess it was last night, I think. And my wife is on a bike that's, I think, seven years old or so. It's uh, an older Swift Carbon Ultravox T1, I think it is, with mechanical Altegra 11 speed, head Ardennes rims, 28 mil tires, rim brakes. It's really light. She likes it, rides well, good gearing, good, you know, reasonable tire clearance, all that stuff. And that bike is seven, seven or eight years old at this point. And I could put her on a bike that's brand new. And sure, I mean, she would prefer electronic shifting because anytime she's tried it, she does like it. But aside from that, that bike is really not that different from what you can get now. You cannot say that same thing about mountain bikes because that technology is still continuing to evolve at insane pace and the bikes that are available now legitimately are tangibly better than what they were back then but now we have all these situations where we are doing things like making bikes just a little bit more aero or like kind of hiding these lines and like we're, we're we're reaching for all this just ridiculous crap to try to make these bikes somewhat better so that people are buying more bikes when instead i would love to see a lot more work put into trying to figure out how to make it so that people can go ride these bikes without getting killed who wants to go next what you got, Kaylee? This relates to an Instagram post thing that I made last weekend, two weekends ago, some of that, which is can be summed up as I want more attention and money and investment put into building bikes for the version of me that existed in around 2001 versus the version of me that exists in 2021, which is, uh, you know, a professional with a full-time job who's been in the industry for a very long time. Uh, in 2001, I was a 13-year-old or something like that, just getting into mountain bike racing, super, super stoked on bikes, super stoked on racing in particular. Uh, and what I did on Instagram is I, I just sent out a, a little thing saying, tell me what your first race bike was. Not just first bike, but first race bike. Because even though Racing is its own thing. I think it's still a pretty powerful pathway into the sport. It makes lifelong cyclists. It makes a lot of lifelong cyclists, right? Yeah, that's you how know, we all... Like, yeah, like this, the cyclocross boom of the sort of like 2010 to 2015, that made a lot of cyclists, right? Even if they're not racing cross anymore. And I do think it's a powerful thing. And, and one of the key takeaways from all those responses from people was all of those bikes, almost all of those bikes were under $1,500, most of them were aluminum. A lot of them were used. And I don't see a ton of time and energy and attention put into that part of the market. Now, there are some exceptions. I think Cannondale has done a really good job of this. I think that like the Specialized LA is sort of on the upper end of that price range, but it's a really cool bike. Because what it's I'm like, fundamentally asking for is not like, yes, there are good bikes you can buy for $800 or $1,000. It's like entry level to real bikes. Right, but they're not cool bikes. And you're, you're talking about trying to get people into something and get people stoked on something and get and turn people into lifelong cyclists. Having a bike be cool is important, like right? Redline Conquest, because we were talking about cross. Like, 
a Redline Conquest Quest was a cool bike. Yeah. Like everyone had one. You'd put like change some parts out to make it even cooler. But like, yeah, it's like a $400 frame maybe. Yeah. And it was awesome. And I get the point. A couple of people responded with basically like, well, whatever bike you bring to a race is a race bike. True. But that only seems to apply at the lower, lower price ranges, yeah. right? How many people are showing up to a Masters 45 plus cross race or crit on some random bike that they cobbled together? Yeah, like, right? like using this Conquest, for example, like you would see that in the lowest category and you would see it in the Cat 1s. Like there'd be different wheels and maybe some different parts, but like the same aluminum frame was raced in all categories and it worked well and like wasn't holding anyone back. And that's like, you're not ever going to see that now. Like you're not going to see some dude racing the one, two race on a CAD four with clapped out one Oh five. Like that's not going to happen anymore. How, how much does some of that fall on us for not talking about bikes like that enough? Because um, we, I don't think that's the case though. Like I, even, yeah. even 10, 15 years ago, like I was broke little bike racer and I loved reading about super cool, high end, awesome bikes. But the difference is the most expensive bike you could buy at the time was maybe five grand. And now like the top of the line tarmac is 15. So I'm right, not, which I, even accounting for inflation yeah, is still uh, way more expensive. James, I don't want to throw the whole industry under the bus here, but I'm going to, which is, Do it. uh, I've been to answer your question. I, I see this comment come up all the time, which is why don't we review my bikes? I've proactively since, since I've been working even from my days at bike radar. So that's like five, six years ago. I was proactively reaching out to brands being like, forget your top end bike. I just want to review your $1,000, $1,500 aluminum bike, the bike that you sell the most of. And the response pretty much always, regardless of who the brand was, was, no, we don't really want that one reviewed. We'll sell out regardless. What we want you to review is the high end bike because that's the one that we want people to read about. And often I could push and get some brands to send me these lower end bikes and I would review them. But... It's not that easy. These brands aren't reaching out to you and being like, hey, we've got this new alloy bike. Can you review it? Proactively having to go and often we're having to ask six months in advance of them even releasing the thing. You know, we just have to guess that they're going to have one and ask for them to put our name down on it. And so it's not that easy. Uh, and I, I'm saying that because I don't think we're actually to blame in this, in this scenario. I think, I think we're if, partially to blame. I don't we know. Could, we could do more. We could do more, but we can only do as much as the industry allows us to do in this sense, right? Like if they're not willing to give us the bikes to test, then Unless we, know, start we don't them. have the budgets to go buy them, right? Yeah. But the maybe thing we to should. me that, that's interesting is like, well, I'm just going to use Specialized, for example, because they make nice aluminum mountain and road bikes, like, or frames, I should say. That's one of my wish list things is better specking of bikes. And like, I, not necessarily better specking, but specking of bikes, how people within the industry build their own personal bikes. Like I would much rather have an Ale frame with Durace or Altegra than I would a Tarmac with 105 or Apex, like, or Rifle or whatever. Like the pricing is going to be still less for the alloy bike and you're going to have better parts. You're going to have better wheels. It's going to ride just as well. And like, that's, I think what would make alloy bikes cool is having alloy bikes in the catalog that are built with cool parts. Like usually they're like cheap, crappy wheels, super crappy, like handlebars and stems and like low end mishmash of parts. And the, I was talking about specialized and the thing there I find interesting is like at tour down under a couple of years ago, they had Sagan do 
the like pre TDU crits on a Ollie. And then like at Leadville this year, they had, um, what's her name? Sarah Sturm on a chisel, but a chisel with all Eagle axis stuff and carbon wheels. Like why is that bike not sold? Well, what's funny is that Cannondale, who has historically kind of flown the flag of really nice aluminum bikes, uh, I guess I would say up until very, very recently anyway, but they had always had a model of their CAD, whatever it was, their 11, 12, whatever generation you want to want to look at. For a long time, they had models of that with Dura-Ace or Red or something like that. And they don't really have that anymore. I think the top-end version that they have is Altegra, I think. Maybe. Uh, maybe even 105 now. Yeah. Like the um, Specialized, I was looking today, and it's 105 as the top-end. So the that leads me to wonder is sort of along the same way that a lot of auto, auto um, a lot of auto enthusiasts have a disproportionate preference for for manual transmissions instead of automatics, but in the general public, it, virtually no one wants a manual transmission. It makes me wonder if, as much as we talk about how we would love to see a more affordable frame hung with more, you know, hung with higher end parts on it, is that the sort of thing that unfortunately people in the mainstream just aren't buying? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think that. First of all, I think we can give the general public a little bit a little bit of credit to being able to identify nice parts, right? And I think that you kind of have to look at it in the same way that the bike brands are looking at their super high-end bikes. The same reason why they want Dave to review the high-end bikes and not the low-end ones is because they want that to be some marquee thing that everyone else views as, okay, well, if they can make this amazing bike, the bike I buy for half the price is going to be really good too, right? And I think that you... It's, it's the same thing if you put really nice parts on an aluminum frame. They might not sell a lot of them. I'm not saying they're going to sell a lot of, of Alays with Durace or CAD 12s with Durace or whatever. But I think so much of it's marketing. Like, But that's what I mean. Is it, it, it makes it... What it is is it makes it okay to think that bike is awesome, right? If the only parts that are hanging off these aluminum frames are cheap, then the whole line is viewed as cheap. If Cannondale says, we think that this bike is awesome enough that we're going to put red on it, or we're going to put Durace on it, we're going to put carbon wheels on it, we're going to make we're gonna make a $7,000 version of this this bike that has a $1,200 frame. I buy it tomorrow. <laughs> you, yeah, like, you buy it tomorrow. But, but for everybody else, it'd be like, well, if they think it's cool enough for that, then I feel pretty good about running the same frame, yeah, like if, but for $1,700. bucks. would be cool, like, say, Specialized, their crit team, Legion. Yeah. Like, if they put Legion on aluminum alloys with the same group that they have like which they used to be on and and the action huggins bourbon yeah. guys used to be on yeah. like they on would sell bikes. so many of those and but it would take away from tarmac sales it does right. it cannibalizes carbon sales um but that's a good thing like you're yeah. talking about sustainableism like yeah you crash an aluminum bike and destroy it you can like the aluminum can be melted down and be made yeah. into other things like carbon 100%. you just throw yeah. it in the garbage the hats. the the i had a few comments from this article because Part of Kaylee's point was I actually, you know, one of my points is make rad aluminium bikes again, which is exactly what Kaylee was saying. And a few comments came back with bike designers and, and people that from the industry basically saying...